1: A riddle wrapped in an enigma inside a mystery. That's how Winston Churchill once described the Soviet Union. I have spent decades working on and thinking about Mexico, and I'm convinced that Churchill's description applies at least as well to that country. Consider. On the one hand, typing Mexico into Google produces endless stories about drug cartels, violence, femicide, corruption, poverty, political shenanigans. The U.S. State Department says that tourists should absolutely not travel to six of Mexico's 32 states, and probably that there are another seven almost as bad. The Economic Commission for Latin America and the Caribbean says Mexico is the fifth poorest country in the Americas, and it seems that a record 2.3 million people who have been arrested trying to cross the Mexican-U.S. border illegally during the year to September 30th. On the other hand, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. The country's president, who is more than halfway through his six-year term, commands approval ratings of around 60%, which would be the envy of almost any democratically elected president anywhere on earth. The party AMLO, as he is known, created is far and away the dominant force in Mexican politics, well-positioned to win the presidency for his successor in 2024. Almost half of Mexicans say their country is on the right path. In the United States, it's about a quarter and more than two-thirds of Mexicans expect life to be better for them and their children five years from now. Mexicans not known for being optimists apparently are optimistic. I hope that my guest today Jorge Castaneda can help solve the riddle. Jorge is an academic and author as well as a former foreign minister and a friend and mentor to me on all things Mexican for too many decades. The last time he joined us on New Thinking for a New World, we talked mostly about his book, America Through Foreign Eyes, which has just been published. Today, we'll talk mostly about Mexico. Welcome, Jorge.
2: Hi, Alan. It's great to be here at Catholic
1: Jorge, you've known at least the last nine Mexican presidents, starting with Luis Echeverria, who took office in 1970. You know the office of the presidency. Indeed, you ran for it at one point. Let's begin our conversation with AMLO. Mexico seems to be a mess, but the polls suggest if an election were held today, he would win again. What's the magic?
2: Well, there is a lot of magic involved of different sorts. There is a certain institutional magic. Most Mexican presidents, with the exception perhaps of Peña Nieto, the previous one, uh, during most of his term, And uh, Ernesto Sevilla, the first year of his term, most Mexican presidents have very high popularity ratings, regardless of what they do or how good or bad presidents they are. It's only when things are really terrible that those ratings go down. And probably most of them would also have been reelected, again, with the exception of Peña Nieto. So there's an institutional issue involved here. Mexicans have a certain reverence for their presidents, whoever they may be. And this has been the case at least now for the past 80 years, because there's been a system which has kind of worked in the sense that presidents are all powerful, but only for six years. So that's one issue. The second one is AMLO himself. And he has found a way to connect with the Mexican people, uh, through channels and in ways that are very mexican although i find them to be very that should be very much criticized basically i think he appeals uh like other people in other countries and i think you'll find the the somewhat familiar out he appeals to the worst sentiments of the mexican people And the Mexican people, like the American people, like the Brazilian people, like the French people, like everybody, have their enormous virtues and their enormous defense. No society, no people is perfect, uh, devoid of defense. But most leaders, most of the time, do not appeal to the worst of their peoples. They try to appeal either to the best or somewhere in the middle. Lopez Obrador appeals to the worst. Let me give you an example, something silly. He has been photographed, I don't know how many times, in an extraordinarily sloppy, disheveled attire, Uh, his shoes dirty, even with a suit, his tie poorly knotted, Uh, the neck of his shirt, collar of his shirt, out of place, Um, his belly protruding. More than it usually does, and it does a lot. Okay. One would say, Mexicans, or other people would say, well, Jesus, you know, maybe he should be a little <clears throat> more careful in how he presents himself in public. No, what he's telling Mexicans is, look, you know, I'm like you. You don't have your shoes polished because you can't pay for a shoe polisher and you don't know how to do it yourself and you don't want to do it yourself. And, you know, and you're sloppily dressed, and yeah, you're not very uh, attractive in terms of how you handle yourself, hold yourself, etc. I have a back problem. I don't sit properly. Yes, I'm overweight. I was like you. So, you know, guys, you like me and I like you because we're the same. With all our weaknesses and sometimes with our virtues, this connects marvelously. I think it's terribly
1: irresponsible. But it is brilliant politics. It works. It works. So, if the election were today, is he reelected? I would say so, yes. Um,
2: yeah, I think he will be re- reelected by at least the margin with which he was elected, which was 53%. Maybe a little bit more. Yes. For these reasons, not his results. His results are terrible. After four years in office now, every, every number is terrible. Inflation, the economy, growth, violence, health, education, the works. There's not one decent number in his, on his record. Not one. But people like him, and they like him for these other reasons. I like you, and I understand you. I feel like you. I resent all these people like you resent them. I can't I hate these people, the white, rich, elitist, arrogant snobs of Las Lomas. I hate them and you hate them. We both hate them. I have to get along with them, but I I feel your pain. It's not I feel your pain. I feel your anger. I feel your resentment. I feel your impotence. He's very good at it. As I say, it's
1: terribly irresponsible. But It's very good. So his term ends in 2024. Mexican presidency, six years, a lot of power when you're in office. And in theory, no power once you leave office, at least in theory. Uh, It is unthinkable that a Mexican president would try to stay on in office. Uh, Hasn't happened. It's been thought about. It's been talked about, but it hasn't happened. Is there any chance that he would try to change that long-standing fact?
2: No, I don't think so. I think he was tempted to do so the first couple of years of his term, when things were going well or not so badly. In other words, not his popularity, but his results, his actual performance. Uh, after the pandemic and after the violence has continued and after, you know, we'll have six, a six-year term of virtual flat growth, zero growth in the economy over the six years. Um, I think he was tempted, but he decided not to do so. And I don't think there's any possibility that he will even try. And I'm sure that he will not succeed.
1: Will he disappear into the night or will he have some kind of continuing influence, do you think?
2: Well, that's a big discussion in Mexico. My sense, and it is not a, a majority opinion at all, but it's my sense, is that he is, a, he is unique among Mexican presidents since the 1940s or even the 30s, in the sense that, first of all, he try, he ran twice before he was elected. So he was an immensely well-known figure in the country before he became president, which was not the case of any of his predecessors. Secondly, he arrived with a huge following and not just an electoral following, but a social base. He has an enormous social base, you know of somewhere around 30 percent of the electorate. The other twenty five percent that may vote for him or that voted for him agree with him or support him, and then they can abandon him or desert him or whatever. But he has a huge social base. He had one when he arrived at the presidency, and he's kept it for these four years, and he will keep it when he leaves. He will be the first president in modern Mexican history who will leave the presidency, not in disgrace or unpopular or unlike or popular, but without any following. He will be with a huge, that huge social base will still be his. And so I don't think he will fade off into the night at all. I think he will continue to be a political force in Mexico, trying to make sure that the things he has done are not reversed, reverted, and that the things he couldn't accomplish or couldn't finish be taken to the bitter end.
1: I want to talk about some of the problems, but maybe first we should talk about that agenda, because you just said uh, he has executed on an agenda of his own, some of which is in place, some of which is not yet in place. What What are the key elements? If If I was asking not you, but Amro, what are the three, four five things that would define who your presidency is? What would they be?
2: He would say, first of all, that he has redistributed uh federal resources to the poor sectors of society. We do not know this as a fact, but that is what he would say. That instead of money being spent on presidential airplanes and big fancy cars and travel for diplomats and big parties, etc., the money is going to the poor, to the young, to the peasantry, etc. We do not know this as a fact. We know, of course, that it's ridiculous to think that by moving out of the uh, of Los Pinos, which was the traditional Mexican presidential residence and offices, to the National Palace, we know he didn't save any money, and consequently that there is no money um, to give away to the poor coming from that. We know he tried to sell the presidential plane and doesn't use it. He wasn't able to sell it, so no money came from that. We don't know if with the This is true. But the first thing he would say is I have taken money from rich government bureaucrats and ridiculous expenditures on luxuries and uh, boondoggles and everything and given it to the poor. That's the first thing he would say. The second thing he would say is that I have a number of um, signature projects that are to the benefit of the people unlike previous governments that made ridiculous things that were of no benefit to the people. For example, his new airport outside of Mexico City, north of Mexico City. For example, the Maya train in the Yucatan Peninsula. For example, the Dos Bocas refinery in Tabasco, his home state. For example, the trans islamic train highway project that runs across the isthmus of Duantepec and theoretically is going to bring huge amounts of investment there. So this is the second thing I have done that is typical. The third thing, I have eliminated corruption. There used to be a lot of corruption in Mexico. There is no more corruption. It's finished. It's over. And the reason it's finished is because we have a, an honest president who is not corrupt. And the minute you have a president who's not corrupt, by definition, everybody else is not corrupt. That's the way it is. So that's the third thing he would certainly emphasize. And you would probably say something to the effect that he has given the presidency back to the people, that the presidency was taken away from the people. Nobody knows exactly when, but it was. And he has given it back. By living in the palace and, instead of Los Pinos, by traveling commercial instead of in a presidential plane, by using a small car instead of a huge uh, motorcade, uh, by dressing the way he dresses, by speaking the way he speaks, by doing all these things, he has given the presidency back to the people. These would be, I guess, his four. the way he would characterize his four major
1: achievements. It's fascinating that they are, from my perspective at least, more form than substance, that they're not in traditional policy terms uh, or defined as solving what you or I might think of as traditional problems. Um, So let's talk about some of the problems then. Uh, Violence. August in Mexico was a particularly nasty month. Uh, at least 25 convenience stores burned down in Guanajuato. Cars set ablaze in towns all along the border. Dead civilians. Drug cartels flaunted their immunity, literally challenging the government and police forces to show up and do something about it. Uh, the police were clearly outgunned, and the last thing they wanted to do was, was to lose a battle. Um, are places like... Guerrero, Michoacán, Sinaloa, Tamaulipas, Zacatecas failed states. President's strategy, which he doubles down on in words, if not in facts, of hugs, not bullets, uh, sure as hell doesn't seem to be working. Um, how, do you think about how do you think about violence? How uh, do you think about violence in Mexico?
2: The, the first thing is that we have the uh, highest levels of uh, homicides per 100,000 inhabitants that we've had since Fox, since Calderón. I mean, with Fox, they were very low. Um, They started to rise with Calderón. They continued to rise, and they are at their highest points. The last year or so, they have flattened out and diminished a tiny bit, maybe 3%. But the number of missing people or disappearatives, they're known in Mexico, has risen dramatically. So it looks like whoever does the killing is instead of just leaving the bodies there they're hiding the bodies. So you have a slight reduction in the number of obvious homicides but you have a significant increase in the number of missing people so the overall number of dead people is higher than ever. So that's a fact. That's secondly there seems to be a Extension of the violence and the cartels, power and the their activities beyond what there was before. Geographically, they're in more places than they used to be. They engage in more activities than they used to engage in. It's not just drugs at all. It's drugs, extortion, protection rackets, people smuggling, organ smuggling. Money laundering, the works, um, and they seem to be more have more impunity than they used to. Uh, López Obrador's policy of benign neglect—that's how I would translate hugs, not bullets—has um, not worked. Uh, I think it's a pity that it hasn't worked because I think he had a point: all-out war against the drug cartels, which is what Calderón and Nieto tried to do, didn't work either. It was terrible. It was, I mean, it's a complete failure. Uh, I think he had a point in find, trying to get some kind of a different strategy, but what he has done has not worked. And this is the, most, the issue that worries most people. Going back to the first question you asked, Alan, about why is he popular, it's important to stress that he is personally popular. But his government's policies are unpopular and not approved of at all by the Mexican people. When you ask people, how do you, what do you think of the government's handling of violence and law enforcement and delinquency? Negative. The economy? Negative. Corruption? Negative. The only one that more or less has positive ratings is health because people believe that it was a big deal that they were vaccinated. Uh, Mexicans still think that this is something that they are not necessarily entitled to. And so the government in its magnanimity and its generosity gave them vaccines. And so they're very happy. Although we know that the actual management of the pandemic was one of the worst in the world.
0: If you feel that the world lacks global leaders, please help support the Talberg Foundation programs. Individual donations are being accepted at talbergfoundation.org/donate that's t a l l b e r g foundation.org/donate
1: you mentioned impunity i read somewhere that something like 95 out of 100 criminals are not prosecuted and that only one out of every 10 crimes are reported that would suggest there is no justice system de facto uh, is that fair
2: I think that's absolutely fair. And I think, uh, you know, you told Mexicans 80% or more would say, would agree with your statement, uh, my confirmation of your statement. There is no rule of law in Mexico. There is no justice system in Mexico. It just doesn't work. There are um, carve outs uh, of this. One of the carve outs used to be, we're beginning to have to question that, NAFTA or now USMCA. There was rule of law, there was legal security or um, uh, property rights, et cetera, for foreign investors, and uh, American investors in particular, in Mexico. Yes, for them, since NAFTA 1994, something like the rule of law exists if you have a problem you know, with your general motors or the ford or your whatever your walmart uh, you know the justice system uh, contracts etc works for you uh, or let's say the outcome of your the process you will uh, engage in in order to get justice the outcome will be just might get there in funny ways, but the outcome will be a fair one. But that's for foreign investment. That's one of the big carve-outs.
1: Let's talk about that carve-out because even the way you set it up, that carve-out has at least a question mark around it these days. There is, I think, for the first time ever, a major problem. There have been a lot of small problems with NAFTA, all of which get resolved one way or the other, sometimes well-resolved, sometimes not. I remember tomatoes, for example, and and trucks. Um, But energy is a big deal. And energy is clearly a growing tension within NAFTA, not just between the U.S. and Mexico, but between Mexico and both other signatories to the USMCA, Canada and the United States. Uh, Almo's energy policies, simply put, seem to violate NAFTA, and he's headed for a fight.
2: It's hard to say. The first point I would make is that during NAFTA's first 25 years, uh, and now the first year or two of USMCA, the United States had never um, posted a complaint, a formal complaint, against Mexico for non-compliance with NAFTA. Mexico posted several of them, like trucks, tomatoes, and stuff. And the Canadians posted complaints against Americans. Uh, soft lumber and stuff like that. But with the Americans had never posted a complaint against Mexico. Now they have. So it's a, it's a sea change. It's something that we have not seen uh, in what will soon be 30 years. In 2024, it will be 30 years. So that's a first. The second point is that the U.S. complaint is both against Mexican um, actions diesel fuel and the content of sulfur, diesel fuel and permits for importing gasoline to Mexico, blah, blah, blah. And a complaint against the new Mexican uh, energy law that was approved by the Congress in 2019. It's against a piece of legislation, not a decision or a government act, which means that If the United States wins the panel arbitration process, if it takes place and the U.S. wins, Mexico either changes its law or will have um, tariffs slapped on it equivalent to the harm done to American companies by the law. But the problem here is López Obrador has to change his law. And I don't think he's going to do that. And although I'm not a trade expert, the Mexican trade experts I've talked to were good friends of mine and very competent and with a lot of experience in these things, all say there is no way out on the issue of the law, the legislation. The other stuff can be fixed. The legislation can't be fixed. You either repeal it or you get punished. And that, of course, would bring into question, would jeopardize The entire notion of a carve out, which was the purpose of this thing when it started out. And you and I talked about this back in 1990, when it was obvious that after the debt renegotiation of 1989, the Baker and Brady negotiations, um, either Mexico was able to, to invite and obtain huge amounts of foreign investment, or it would not grow. Because it was no longer uh, it no longer had access to massive foreign credits, that was over. Well, the way to get massive foreign investment was NAFTA, or that was what the Mexicans believed and the Americans believed. That if you establish the rule of law for Americans and Canadians in Mexico, you, gave, you could give them the security, the safety, the guarantees. You'll be okay in Mexico. There may be a bunch of Mexicans killed and ripped off and all sorts of terrible things happening to Mexicans, but nothing will happen to you. You'll be okay With this energy bill and everything that Lopez Obrador has done, he is jeopardizing the very notion of a carve out for Americans and Canadians, that this is there is a part of the country, a legal part, a geographical part, a physical part, everything part of Mexico. That is modern, that's civilized, that's normal, that you can invest in, play in, live in, have
1: your kids go to school in, et cetera. Um, that isn't jeopardy. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Secretary Baker's name. The Baker Institute, which he founded at Rice University, just published an article, the title of which is. Um, AMLO's energy and investment policies will make Mexico poor again. Begs the question as to the again question. That's a different issue. But nonetheless, that notion that, as you've described it, AMLO is a statist in economic terms. Um, The entire NAFTA structure assumed a free market basic orientation, if, if not always honored. Honored certainly uh, enough at the time to make it work. So, would you agree with that headline? That that's pretty brutal.
2: Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty brutal. I I'm perhaps this. The center is run by a fellow named Tony Payal. I don't know if he's the author of this piece, but uh, uh, he's a very bright guy. And so um, it makes a lot of sense. uh, And the Baker Institute is a very serious place. Um, You know, it may be a little strident. The title may be a little strident. And I would have maybe some differences with the notion of making Mexico poor. Again, I'm not sure I remember when it wasn't poor. (laughs) I'm getting on in years. But but I think uh, what is true is that by as I say, jeopardizing or endangering the structure that has been in place since 1994, which is perhaps centered on NAFTA and USMCA, but not limited to NAFTA and USMCA, but includes the energy reform of 2014, includes a lot of the liberalization policies that Cedillo and Fox and Calderon put in place, uh, includes uh, the idea that you try and have something like a freer market with fewer monopolies and more competition and something like the rule of law, at least in the business side of the country. All of that, I think, is endangering. And if you endanger that, you're going to endanger, put at risk, the mediocre growth we have had since NAFTA. Because, you know, I'm sure the author of that article knows this. We may not emphasize it. But the average rate of growth of the Mexican economy from 1994 to 2018, before AMLO, was 2.2%. For a, an economy like Mexico's, this is nothing. Now, a lot of people would make the case, yeah, but without NAFTA, it would have been much less. Maybe. That's, but this is, these are not impressive results. So it's not that things were fantastic, but they were certainly better than they are now. We would love Lopez Obrador would have loved to have had two percent annual growth for his six years. That would be fifteen percent over the six years. That'd be great.
1: Now I'm worried. I I've got to say, as an American, and you know this, I have always believed it's deeply in our the US national interest to have a stable, prosperous country on our border. In fact, I can't imagine anything more important to U.S. national security. Uh, Should I be worried? Well, I I think you you
2: should for two reasons. First of all, because stability has been the most important U.S. goal in policy towards Mexico, at least since the Mexican Revolution, at least since uh, Woodrow Wilson took office in uh, 1912. Uh, before you can, you know, expansion, uh, invasion, this, that. It's hard to say whether there was a real policy. But certainly since Wilson, stability has been the, the central vote of U.S. policy. And it's not clear to me that the Biden administration necessarily subscribes to this view. Uh, it seems to me that the view they subscribe to is that keeping the Central Americans out is the most important goal of U.S.-Mexican policy. That is Out out of the U.S., keeping everybody, the Cubans, the Venezuelans, the Central Americans, the Haitians, everybody out of the U.S., that this is what Mexico should be doing. And the U.S.'s overriding goal in dealing with Mexico is to make sure that Mexico does this. I think that that's a change in the American paradigm. I have no proof of this, but that's my impression. So that's one reason to be worried. And the second reason to be worried is that, yes, I mean, Mexico is becoming more unstable and is becoming more unstable because the economy isn't growing. This is not a country that can afford to not have a growing economy. We kind of had a not growing economy during the 1980s, and it was a disaster. I mean, all sorts of very terrible things happened to Mexico and in Mexico during the 1980s. And it's taken us a long time to try and recover uh, from those losses. And now you have a stagnant economy. I mean, just to give you an idea, I just recently saw the numbers published by CBP. There are far more Mexicans who were detained at the border in fiscal 22 than in fiscal 21 than in fiscal 20. Than in fiscal 19, more Mexicans than ever probably are leaving Mexico, coming to the United States. And you have to remember, a lot of Mexicans aren't caught. In other words, the Central Americans, the Cubans, they see a border patrol guy, they say, thank God, and they go and say hello and say, hey, lock me up. That's what I came here for. The Mexican sees a border patrol guy and he runs away. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to be. He's not asking for asylum. He's coming to see his cousin in New York City (laughs) to find a job in the same restaurant or flower shop or construction site. So... Those numbers for the increasing number of the growth in Mexicans coming to the U.S. is underestimates the total. An unstable Mexico is a nightmare for the United States from every point of view. A lot of people don't know this, Alan, you do. There are more Americans living in Mexico, living, not tourists, living in Mexico than in any other country in the world. Well over a million, probably a million and a half than in any country in the world. By the way, I think they're right. It's the best deal you can get. You live on American dollars and you spend in Mexican pesos. It's a hospitable country. It's a generous country. It's a beautiful country. I mean, they have the time of their lives. The young ones are now doing uh, remote work from the Condesa neighborhood in Mexico City and uh, the Snowbirds and the retirees in San Miguel Allende. They have the time of their lives. But... A million and a half Americans in Mexico are one out of a potential danger issue for the United States in an unstable Mexico.
1: Oh, I go back to my point. There is nothing more important to American national security than stability and prosperity, I would argue, uh, in Mexico. And it is remarkable pre-COVID, the number of Mexicans moving to the United States had collapsed. This was about Central Americans, and it was about Cubans. It was about Haitians. Mexicans were staying home, and now that has shifted, which it, it, it's, a, it's a good point. It's, it's a bad development, but it's a good point as an indicator of conditions in Mexico. Uh, Houston, we have a problem.
2: A- absolutely. It's just one indicator, but there's more. It's a complicated situation. I mean, it's not Uh, It's an economic situation. You say prosperity. I would say uh, the hope of prosperity, the perspective of prosperity. Mexico has never been, unlike what the the gentleman from the Baker Institute says, uh, a a non-poor country. It's always been a poor country, but at least since the 1940s and with the exception of the 80s again now, Until 10 years ago, five years ago, everyone had the hope of prosperity, that things would be better uh, next year. In that poll, you mentioned at the beginning, yes, Mexicans say they think things will be better for them uh, five years from now. problem, of course, is that they're wrong, at least with current policies. And this is a fact. It's, It's the hope of prosperity, but some reality of an improvement in your standard of living. And we're not seeing that in Mexico anymore.
1: Let's leave it there because you're going to depress me even more than I am depressed. <laughs> and probably our listeners as well. So thank you, Jorge, um, for this conversation and all of our conversations back to God knows how many years we've known each other. Uh, but I appreciate all of them.
2: Now, well, it's, it's great, as always, to chat with you, Alan.
0: Thank you for joining us. Please rate our show on Apple Podcast and subscribe. Meanwhile, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Or you can subscribe to our newsletter at talbergfoundation.org to learn more about our work. That's T-A-L-L-B-E-R-G foundation.org. Thank you, and we'll be back again next week for another episode of Talberg's New Thinking for a New World. This podcast was brought to you through the generous support of SNF, the Stavros-Nyarkos Foundation.